and welcome to MetCast, the official podcast of Manchester Metropolitan University. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Paul Brannigan, a senior lecturer in sport policy and management at the Manchester Metropolitan University Institute of Sport. We will talk about how world leaders and nation states use sport as a vehicle to gain soft power and boost their country's image and achieve their social, political and economical goals. With the Tour de France reaching its final week, we will discuss how nation states use this competition in the same way, as well as more generally on how and why they do this, whether it works and what the future holds. Welcome to Metcast Paul and thank you for joining us. Um, so first of all, I think it'd be good to bottom out in simple terms, what is soft power? Okay, yeah, thanks very much for having me on, Jeff. It's a real pleasure uh, to be talking to you. So soft power was coined in 1990 by an American professor called Joseph Nye. Um, and in its simplest version, Nye realised that if you take power to mean getting what you want, there are sort of two ways to do it. The first is hard power, which is coercive power, whereby I could force you to do what I want you to do. So obviously the classic example recently, you know, you look at the Russia invasion of Ukraine, that's a very coercive form of power. But Nye also realised that actors, whoever they may be, could also get what they want through being attractive. So if I can entice you to want what I want uh, or entrapped you in a myriad of different ways, I can still get what I want without actually forcing you to do what I want. And that actually tends to be a lot more effective. If you want what I want, it's a lot easier for me to get what I want, if that makes sense. Yeah. And is that the same as sports washing, which is a term that I feel like we keep hearing about more and more, isn't it, over the kind of last few years? So that couldn't be more of an important question, Jess. Um, no, sports washing is a very weak academic concept. It's a bit of a buzzword. That's not to take anything away from it. It still encapsulates, I guess, a very relevant trend we see in sport. Um, but conceptually, it's very, very weak. So there are similarities. Soft power would be a country using a sports mega event to promote its positive features. But those positive features have to be credible. So a classic example there would be, you know, if I'm a nation state who gets, you know, average tourism numbers, I might use a mega event to showcase just how beautiful my country is. And if it is indeed beautiful, that's soft power because you, your family might come back year after year after year. Sports washing doesn't require credibility. Sports washing is trying to cover up negative images. So it doesn't really require the key variable there, which is credibility. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And why is soft power, why is it such a big thing in connection with sporting events? Okay, so if you imagine, um, I guess this works with humans or nation states, whatever it may be. If soft power is about gaining attraction, then the first thing that states have to do is showcase that attraction. So if I asked you if you think a person or a country is attractive, you could only give me your opinion if you'd seen or knew anything about that person or country, first of all. Yeah. So what we see is then that what states do when they're competing for attraction is try and secure types of communication strategic vehicles that encapsulate the widest possible audiences. Well, there's a number of things, but without going through the whole list, really in Olympic Games, the Summer Olympic Games or a Football World Cup, 
you know, where we see billions and billions of people watch these events, there's nothing really more global than those type of major events. So in terms of capturing an international audience, nothing compares really to a sports mega event. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, like you say, it's that reach that you get from a sporting event. It's kind of unmatched anywhere else, isn't it, really? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do countries and world leaders and how do they use sports events to change their reputation or people's perceptions of them? So I think what we really see are two things. If you're an established country like the UK, like the Germany's, you know, Paris in, in 2024, what tends to happen is we we see how these events are trying to be used to reshape a country's image. So according to the UK, most non-Brits see UK people as somewhat stuck up, very boring, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we use the event to, you know, I don't know if you remember having adverts with the Queen and Mr Bean and James Bond to really showcase that that's not true. We are, you know, as a population, we've made significant contribution culturally and we're also very funny and hospitable. So it's really about changing that image. What we see, however, with developing countries like Qatar, for example, like South Africa, uh, etc. It's really about overcoming their greatest hurdles, which is either invisibility or stereotypes. So, we, you know, um, South Africa was very worried about being sort of seen in that very African stereotypical view, you know, as being slightly underdeveloped compared to the rest of the world. So the key there was really showing South Africa as a very progressive modern country. Yeah. And does it work the same for brands as well? So through sponsorship. So, for example, it's the Tour de France at the moment. And I know like a few years ago, there was the issue where Sky stepped aside and Ineos came in and took over the sponsorship. But there was there were kind of chemicals company aren't they that had a questionable reputation in terms of their environmental profile is that kind of an example of perhaps more sports washing perhaps and rather than the soft power thing where they're trying to come into a big sport a big event to boost their reputation yeah i think so and i think there is there is caveats to this so there's a a concept i coined uh with one of my colleagues was soft disempowerment what tends to happen again if you if you're so if you're a nation state you're trying to get soft power you use a mega event as a stage to increase awareness of yourself and your attractive features the issue we have is as you try and increase visibility of yourself you also increase visibility of your problems at home so again you know qatar being a classic example here wanted to really position itself as a go-to destination for politics and tourism but actually it's you know raised awareness in the media have raised awareness of its issues around human rights bribery and corruption you know it's heat and everything else so this can significantly backfire most certainly i think where sports washing and soft disempowerment sort of have a break is that soft disempowerment is normally the negative outcome of a soft power attempt and the idea of credibility is there from the start even though it hasn't worked out. Sports washing doesn't start with credibility. So I think this is very, very different. And obviously the classic example now being Saudi Arabia, you know, it's not looking to promote its positive features at home. It's looking to brush under the rug or the carpet, if you like, its negative images. And I think that's the significant difference between the sort of two concepts. But yeah, I mean, you know, we also we also quite very, very rightly connected that there to brands. Companies do this too. You know, uh, and why do they do it with sport? 
we like to see and position sport as this wholesome activity, which is, you know, all about hard work and fair play and health. So they deliberately try to cuddle up with these brands and, you know, the biggest brand here being sport. So, yeah, there's certainly parallels there to both states and sort of more corporate brands doing this with sport. Yeah. And and just going back to the Tour de France, given that that's a, an event that's on at the moment, we also have Middle Eastern countries such as UAE and Bahrain enter teams into that. And I think both teams are only entered for the first time in 2017, so not that long ago, really. Um, Tour de France is obviously a prestigious event in itself, but would you say that cycling is a good sport to engage in if you're trying to boost your profile and awareness of your country? Um, Especially when you compare it to the likes of football, which is huge in our country, where you've got the Saudi Arabia takeover of Newcastle United, we've got the World Cup in Qatar... I think if you're looking to sports wash and therefore reposition yourself by sort of saying to audiences, well, look over here, don't look at our problems at home, but look what we're doing here. Cycling's a risky one to do because for decades now it's been, you know, plagued by accusations of doping and you can see Lance Armstrong's sort of case study, etc. But it also doesn't include the kind of audiences that global football and Olympics and things like that do as well. But nonetheless, you know, it is still considered to be, regards to doping, there are still various packages around cycling and the Tour de France. There's a lot of prestige there. And a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, you know, their, their key domestic indigenous sports are racing, horse racing and all this sort of thing. So it's sort of, you know, a, a, an extension of themselves to, to sort of seek out various racing competitions. But it is a huge risk and it certainly doesn't have the return on investment of say like a Newcastle United or you know when you talk about the UAE you know the Manchester cities of the world definitely not. No and obviously it does cost a lot of money for countries to start doing these things doesn't it you know or sponsor a team or or whatever is it worth it does it work? That's a brilliant question but a difficult one to answer I think it depends on the context so let's take the Qatar World Cup just because it's coming up they will be spending about 137 billion on related infrastructure. Is the Qatar World Cup directly going to make the country 137 billion plus? Definitely, definitely not. Um, however, you know, for Qatar, this is a much longer term strategy. So the key question there will be how long will the World Cup's legacy last for? Will this have an impact on the next hundred years for Qatar politics and tourism? Well, if it does, then yes, they might get that money back. In terms of football clubs, it can work. So we look at, you know, Paris, uh, which was bought by Qatar for, I think, 97 million. It's now a billion pound club. Newcastle, I think, was 300 odd million. You know, that could quite easily be a billion dollar club in five years time as well. So it can work. But I think a lot of the time it's really about these. It's not about making money. I don't think that's why these countries necessarily invest in these corporate these sports brands. It's much more about the sort of more soft power symbolic capital that, you know, one hopes to reap in the in the short and long term. I think that's really the key there. Yeah. And, and kind of going back to what you said earlier, really, do you think that countries using sports events to gain soft power is a negative or a positive thing? Because I guess in some ways, you know, you can question, are they trying to, like you say, brush it under the carpet, make us forget about the bad things and focus on the good things? But then again, is it helping raise awareness of the issues that are going on in these countries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think 
whether it's a good or bad thing, again, very much depends, Jess, obviously, on, on the country and the context. But yes, I mean, I think certainly from what we've seen, you know, we look at the 2018 World Cup and Sochi in Russia and these various kinds of Brazil and so on. You know, I mean, I was in Brazil when there were mass protests from the Brazilian public because, you know, this country was hosting a World Cup and then two years later, Olympic Games back to back when, the you know, I've, I've never seen poverty like it in Brazil. So, you know, that's that's obviously ridiculous. And that was the, there was certainly consciousness awareness raising there about that. And we look at human rights. I think what it's done is provided ammunition to these various international governmental and non-governmental organizations like Amnesty International, Greenpeace, Human Rights Watch, to ensure that moving forward, Olympic Games and World Cups are a lot more sustainably focused, both you know, in terms of environment, in terms of human rights and everything else. I think we'll increasingly see that moving forward, that states, if they want to host these events, they will be required to make various domestic changes to sustainability. And I think that will be a key criteria for them to qualify of even actually bidding for these events. So I think in those regards, yes, I think I think it can be very much a good thing. I think it will be it will help push sport forward as being an engine of change for in, in positive terms. Yeah, absolutely. And that was going to be my, my next question, to be honest, you know, can sport drive change? And I guess the answer is, yeah, it can. It can with a pinch of salt, uh, because we talk, you know, we look at the Olympics now is very much about being a green Olympics. That's a bit of a difficult one because Olympic Games inherently by building all these stadiums infrastructure, you're actually damaging the environment. So they can be more green aware. They can never be green. And the same, you know, human rights, it might be a case of these events can be more human rights aware. It doesn't necessarily mean it, 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 you know, these these are going to be panaceas of society and, and, you know, magic wands where everything becomes grey. But yes, I I think they can can certainly be engines of sociable change in the future, but they're certainly not magic wands that will suddenly make everything grey. Absolutely, yeah. And I don't know whether you think um, this shift towards hosting mega sporting events in countries that might be seen to have questionable credentials is having an impact on the type of crowd they bring in or the way that we watch sport, Um, whether that might be because of the credentials or other things. But I know, although this maybe not is the same as like an Olympics or as popular as the Olympics, but I remember when the Athletics Championships was held in Doha and there was a lot of comments over the noticeable lack of crowds there. So is that sustainable for them? Um, And can they continue to do these things if they're not getting the people in their stadiums or whatever? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit. It's been a bit of a lightning rod, Jess, particularly for Qatar. And you know, I I remember being obviously to Qatar quite a few times. I remember going to a, a stadium which would have probably been the equivalent of like an Arsenal here, which hurts me. I'm an Arsenal fan, and this is a sort of mid-table team. But I'm, it was a stadium. I think I held about eighteen thousand, and there was probably no more than eighty people at the stadium. And this was a big game. This isn't a friendly. This was a big game. You know. And obviously, there's been a lot of uh, accusations levied at Qatar that they're now paying some of their expatriate workers to attend these events and everything else. I think the key issue there, I think, is looking at it, and that really, I think, lies with the governing bodies like FIFA and, and the IOC, particularly FIFA, you know, that they the, these big events do tend to go to where the big markets are, regardless of the outcomes. Um, so I think 
for the Qatar World Cup, I think this will be much more of a Arab Games. I think it'll be it will be attended by neighbouring countries a lot more than Western countries, um, which is a very unique thing. But the problem you've got here, of course, is that we can't just hope, hold World Cups where it's it works for Western audiences because it wouldn't be a World Cup. It would be a sort of more Western Cup, you know, so it has to travel to these new areas. I think a key thing there, though, just as well, is also how technology might impact this. You know, at what point will virtual reality kick in? And, you know, if you want to go watch the, the IAAF Athletic Championships in Doha, you can do from the comfort of your own living room. You can still be there and you could buy a ticket, at, you know, £10 or whatever, but you don't actually have to travel. You know, I think the key thing there will be at what point does that kick in? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. Um, well, finally, I think, what do you think the future holds in terms of countries using sports for soft power? You know, is it going to continue? Are, are more countries, more brands going to start doing this? You know, is there any policy that needs putting in place to kind of monitor that that happening? Yeah, that that's that's really interesting, Jess. I think the key thing there is I, I think mega events will follow broader trends of where the new markets are. So if you look at the, the major markets over the last 10 years and those countries have grown rapidly, it's the UAEs, the Qatars, the Saudi Arabias, China, Singapore, Malaysia, those type of countries. Um, so I, I certainly think it, it, in the next 10 years or so, we will certainly see an Olympic Games awarded to a new city that hasn't ever hosted before. And I think the World Cup will continue to travel to new destinations. And the key thing there really is, you know, at the end of the day, as much as we like to position sport as this, this clean, fair activity, it is a business and it will go to those new markets. So I think that's really the future. We'll, we'll see more and more countries, new countries hosting these big events, which will bring in new, unfamiliar political issues, which we and the rest of the world will continue to talk about. Um, and that in turn, which, as you mentioned, about the governance side of it, will continue to raise much, much bigger questions for these various governing bodies. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Metcast, the official podcast of Manchester Metropolitan University. Your feedback is always welcome, as are much needed reviews and ratings on iTunes. So if you have a moment, please head there and let us know what you think. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your preferred podcast platform, That's all for this time though, see you next time.